Hello, and welcome to Banking Transformed. I'm your host, Jim Maroos, founder and CEO of the Digital Banking Report and co-publisher of The Financial Brand. On today's podcast, we will recap my recent tour of the financial services ecosystem in Shenzhen, China. An amazing cultural and business immersion experience, this private tour of some of the most progressive financial institutions in China was eye-opening, to say the least. Beyond allowing me to experience how a city of the future operates, each stop greatly expanded my horizon of what can be achieved if financial and non-financial organizations follow the lead of China in the area of data analytics and privacy, building an innovation culture, committing to ongoing research and development, focusing on financial inclusion, and taking advantage of potential of collaboration. I'm very excited to have Matt Dooley and Dave Wallace on the show today. Matt was our tour guide in China, providing unparalleled access to five very different organizations while giving us a perspective of the interrelationships between business and government in China. Matt is based in China and is on the board of the FinTech Association of Hong Kong. Dave Wallace is based in the UK and is the former global CEO of the user experience agency Heath Wallace. So, Matt and Dave, I'm glad to have you on the show. You know, this, we don't usually turn around things so quickly, but we just got back from China, from Shenzhen last week, and I did an article called The Best of Banking Has Arrived or The Future of Banking is Here for the Financial Brand. And the response to that article has been, without a doubt, astounding and encouraging because the article really focused on what we experienced in China, but more importantly, what the potential is. And so we're going to do a quick introduction, a little bit that Matt is the person who guided our tour in Shenzhen, and Dave Wallace from Heath Wallace uh, joined us from the UK. And the three of us did not only a tour of some of the best of financial institutions, but the best of technology in Shenzhen, and really gave us an idea of a mixture of the culture and the potential of what's available in Shenzhen, but really in the world. So I'm going to start off with you, uh, Matt. In the trip to Shenzhen, what were you hoping that you'd expose both Dave and I to when we were there? I love taking new people or people who have never been to China and throwing them into Shenzhen because Shenzhen is an absolute melting pot. It's on the border directly opposite or, or right next to Hong Kong. And it's only a 40-year-old city, but in the last 10 years, it's really morphed itself into a digital centre. And it's a digital centre not only for the manufacture of, say, all the IoT, so Apple products are developed in Shenzhen, but what we're seeing is with WeChat and Tencent being located in the city, you're seeing a lot of coders come into town, you're seeing a lot of the whole ecosystem around social and gaming has come to Shenzhen. But you've also got the largest financial institutions in China also located in the city, and you've got a very strong regulator that has close links with the Hong Kong regulators. So it's a great melting pot for fintech, and fintech in China isn't about just transforming banking. It's embedding banking into everyday life. So these blurs and uh, the lifestyle, you really can't see it or read about it 
and it doesn't bring it to life unless you actually see it. And what I did with you guys is what I do with all my trips to China is we go out at night, we go and meet entrepreneurs, we meet people who are actually living this lifestyle, and you get a first-hand account of how technology and digital has really transformed their lives with financial services just seamlessly embedded into it. So, Dave, us both being uh, new to Shenzhen and and we've both been to Hong Kong, there was an immediate difference in just the feel of the city. Dave, what was your first impression as we walked around the streets of Shenzhen? To me, I really didn't quite know what to expect. I was expecting a, a modern metropolis and Shenzhen delivered in terms of that. But I think one of the things which was immediately apparent was how quiet it was. So a lot of the vehicles on the road are electric. And instead of hearing the sort of relentless traffic noise that you tend to hear in Hong Kong, what we had was sort of silence in Shenzhen. So very few of the cars are petrol. And it it sort of immediately was sort of like, ah, this is completely unexpected. There seemed to be a lot less pollution. I mean, strangely, it sort of felt like Singapore. There was sort of large boulevards with trees everywhere. And it just sort of felt like a very kind of, I would say, sort of eco forward looking city. So, I mean, that was an immediate surprise to me. And I think that the fact that you can go from Hong Kong to Shenzhen in less than an hour, you get this incredible kind of contrast between the two places. So, yeah, that was kind of my immediate opinion. So, Matt, you started our tour before we even visited one of the financial institutions, and you took us to a fresh market, um, a HEMA market that is actually the outgrowth of one of the divisions of Alibaba. Can you explain a little bit about what that fresh market concept is and how it's grown in China? You don't just have Alibaba doing it. You have a number of organizations having their own spin on it. And you've even got Walmart have their Walmart Fresh tested in Shenzhen as well. Now, Jack Ma coined the phrase new retail and the Herma supermarket is all about new retail. So what it is 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 being at the center of the community. So there's a lot of new cities being built in China and Within a Herma supermarket is at the centre of a new residential and metropolis being built around it. So within a two-kilometre uh, uh, two radius, they deliver within 30 minutes. So you can either go to the physical store and in the physical store, it's a bit like a supermarket from a Western context, but it's also like a wet market in an Eastern context. So a wet market means that you can have live fish and live animals actually in the place. So like anything, food is a very important part of the lifestyle of any society and it's the element of utmost trust. So I always label it as a trust factory. So the whole system, when you actually walk into the store, you see above you a whole moving conveyor belt where people actually do the shopping of the online orders and put them into little bags. And these bags are all barcoded. And whether you're ordering one item or a thousand items, they're all picked within that store all put on their little bags and then they go above and then out the back 
where they quickly get onto a bicycle or they get into a small truck and actually go to the, the residence. Now, this was the last mile in terms of making the whole society digital from an Alibaba perspective. So Alipay, when they started opening these stores, and the aim is to have over 2,000 stores by the end of 2022. And it's a staggering amount because what these stores are is they know all the data on who's ordering, what they're eating and everything. Most of the items are actually picked, so the whole supply chain is actually optimised. So fresh produce is picked in the morning and it actually appears on the shelves. So they have a lot of items, just like a wet market in any city in China, where the items, you know where they're being picked by which farmer at what time, and you know it's got today's date on it. So you know it's absolutely fresh. And at seven o'clock at night, these items, if they're still on the shelf, are half price and you can actually buy that. But now Alibaba has all that rich data and they utilize that rich data not only for understanding your preferences in terms of eating but also financial services. So Dave, you know, we, we walked through this and I think it was the first experience where our heads seemed to be on a swivel because every time, you know, we, we went from a place where you saw extraordinarily fresh vegetables and fruit to seeing a guy taking the fish out of the tank and preparing it. And I think I know. what were your first impressions? Because, you know, in European cities, the fresh market or the local market is a staple, much more than in normal cities in the U.S., except for, let's say, New York and Los Angeles. But what was your impression and what did you see as possibly being the future from not only from the market standpoint, but also from the ability for institutions like a financial institution to be at the hub of this? To me, it was incredible. I mean, it just, it sort of felt like a really kind of nice destination. It was clean, it was bright. I think my sort of first view, I was like, who are all these people in blue kind of wandering around? And then sort of Matt explained that they were pickers. And suddenly you realize that there's an army of people rushing around getting food. And I think, you know, that real sense of East meets West was kind of there. So it felt like a traditional any grocery shop that you'd sort of see in the West. But suddenly there was all the fish tanks with people catching fish and clams and it just felt kind of very fresh. But I think the other thing that was kind of interesting is there was a restaurant which was sort of in the middle of the supermarket as well. So there seemed to be people coming in, they'd catch fish and that fish would then be cooked for them in the supermarket. So it sort of felt like it was a kind of destination in its own right. So, I mean, the other thing which was... I mean, a real surprise was in terms of checkout, there was two kiosks uh, in the corner of the store. And you kind of realize that the point of the store is about delivery. It's not about people going. So people can go if they want to, but it's about that delivery. So to me, I was like, well, actually, this is quite an interesting model because instead of us all driving our cars to supermarkets or getting bulk deliveries coming to us on sort of trucks from Amazon or Tesco's or whoever it is, what you have is a supermarket where people, I think, seem to be ordering kind of a small number of items, but those items are kind of being delivered on mopeds, on bicycles. It sort of felt very kind of eco in terms of what was going on. So, you know, and I think sort of to Matt's point around data from a kind of financial services point of view, having companies kind of involved in sort of retail 
you know, it kind of helps to build trust. It helps from a data point of view to understand what kind of behavior is so that, you know, people like Alibaba can actually then come up with new products which are kind of fit for that audience. And speaking of Alibaba, one of the places that Matt took us to was to the uh, Alibaba cloud unit. And it really gave us a perspective on the expansiveness of the Alibaba network. And we sometimes hear about Alipay, and some people may know some of the retail outlets. But I think from the Alibaba cloud perspective, we were able to see a, like an, I'll call it an org chart of businesses, not only that are impacting China, but are impacting the world. Can you explain a little bit about what you know about the Alibaba cloud network, but also Alibaba in general, Matt? Well, it's just like how Amazon started. Amazon realized that they had all this latency for most of the year. And when you think of Alibaba, you think of two days. You think of the 11th of November every year, and that's called Singles Day, the 11th of the 11th. And that's where Jack Ma created a holiday where everyone can go shopping. And there's a lot of bachelors in China and they just love this. It's like a celebration of shopping and it's e-commerce shopping. And other companies have now come onto the bandwagon, but it really started off as an event that was on television and it just created this huge promotion that everyone did their shopping. And when you look at the size of it, like last year they just in a 24-hour period, you had one company doing $38 billion in sales. Just one company. Without any downtime. I mean, they did this all. No downtime. <laughs> yeah. And and it's to process the, you know, you have Ant Financial, which is the fintech arm for Alibaba. They have created an amazing scale for their business that they can do all these transactions and without fail, it all works smoothly. So AliCloud is the backbone behind the Alibaba group in terms of cloud services. When we look at that too, they serve over 700 million users a month. That's 70% of the Chinese population, which from a scale standpoint is, to me, very numbing, I guess. I mean, it was one of the things which time and time again, we kind of picked up on was just the incredible scale around these things. And I think, you know, going back to the fact that kind of Alipay is moving on to a cloud platform, there are sort of a large number of businesses and it's been mandated that they'll all have to use the cloud. And you think, well, this is no mean undertaking. But I think what they're looking to do is to kind of leverage the platform because they know that scale is absolutely paramount to everything that they do. You know, and from a customer experience perspective too, Dave, I think what was interesting, this was a great example of just massive amount of data that's used for a better experience. I think, you know, this is not the only time that we heard the organization on their own say two things. Number one, or three things actually. Number one, it's about trust. Number two, it's about using data responsibly. And number three, it was about serving all consumers. What was interesting is they have different businesses and they touch people in different ways. But there's an inclusionary factor from a standpoint of making it so that the data allows not only the organization to touch a part of everybody's life, 
but more importantly, to make it so they can serve the most basic of needs from the most basic of consumers, where sometimes they are left out of the normal system. And Dave, you know, you're the customer experience expert. You think about the power of this to make a better experience. It's pretty amazing, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, it was actually quite unexpected in terms of how the experience was sort of critical as part of everything that we kind of talked about. And I think that whole thing around inclusion, it kept on coming up that they want people to be able to be part of the system so that everybody can kind of have access to financial services products, they can have access to to lending. I think, as you say, that the sort of vast amounts of data that they have, they seem to be kind of using wisely in terms of thinking about new products, thinking about vertical products, thinking about segmentation in terms of the way that they're kind of doing things. And I think, you know, what you see is is sort of better experiences. So I guess if you look at the world of Alibaba, there's a huge number of kind of products and services out there kind of servicing different customers. And I think what they have is sort of one platform underneath it, but they're using the data to kind of make sure that they reach people appropriately. And Matt, from an Alibaba standpoint, it was very clear when we met with Jerry Sien, who was the principal advisory consultant for Alibaba Cloud, that they have aspirations to expand globally, don't they? They do. And when you have a look at their business model, their business model is built on three pillars. The first one is this inclusive finance. So they're They've really dummied down everything to create, well, the whole concept of what Ant Financial is. It's all having a notion of how ants work together to build and create a really healthy colony. And it's rewarding the hard workers. So that whole bit about inclusive finance came with the social scoring of Sesame Credit, which is another division of Ant Financial. But the second one was green finance. So basically creating a whole host of investment vehicles and everything that would really support sustainable development and sustainable investments. So you can see that when you actually go there, there's a lot of investment in companies that provide, say, public bicycle systems. There's green funds on the platform that you can actually invest in. And the third pillar that they have is really technology. And it's this technology that is the real critical thing here. So everything is built on cloud. And they have this thing which they call the 310 strategy for online lending. And really, it's a service standard where you have three-minute application process, a one-second loan approval, with zero manual intervention. Now, when you're building for China and you're building for that 1.2 billion people, you can't have humans getting involved in the process. So they've really engineered it so well. And the other thing that you start to see around Shenzhen is how these online programs are actually connected to physical infrastructure in the city. So one of the things that both Tencent and Alibaba did is every year there's two mass migrations, the biggest migrations in the world. And that happens at Chinese New Year. And it also happens in Golden Week, which is the 1st of October, the um, Independence Day for China. And at those times, people move from the cities and go back to their small villages. And so the train stations are built 
so massively. But the infrastructure to get tickets and everything have been solved by these tech companies and through the payment and stuff. So it's really these seamless operations, which you take for granted, but it's been perfectly engineered and executed at the same time. We went from Alibaba and then another massive company that I think a lot of people in the West are probably less familiar with from a name standpoint, that is Ping An Financial. Now, Ping An is prominent in Shenzhen for no other reason than they have the building that everybody looks up to. When I say everybody looks up to, I think for a person like Dave, who didn't really love heights, to look at the bottom (laughs) of the building and actually see the building expand at the top, where it actually is almost bigger at the top than it is in the bottom. So there's a, a very strange dynamic of perspectives. You know, we were fortunate enough to get up to the 118th floor to have lunch. And the 118th floor is the top of the building to overlook the entire city. And two things were immediately impressive. Number one, when you walked in the building, it happened to be lunchtime for us and everybody coming off the escalator. I poked uh, Dave and said, do you see anything different about this? He goes, well, everybody's using facial recognition to get through the turnstiles. I said, more than that, look around. And he goes, Oh, oh, my God, we are double the age of everybody that's coming out of this building. <laughs> Double's saying it kindly, to be yeah. honest with you. I so. think double the age and double the size. Well, it, you know, it, it, and then we find out that the average age in Shenzhen is 30, and the average age at Ping An is 29. But, Matt, from the perspective of what you wanted us to see and hear from the executive that we talked to in Ping An, what were you hoping that we would get out of the Ping An visit? I think the the Ping An story is a real unique one because it's one of the few organizations in China that has every financial services license across both banking and insurance. They're quite a unique company in the sense that a few years ago, they started really focusing on ecosystems. And it wasn't about just digitizing their own business. Their whole business model revolves around moving and embedding financial services where people need it the most in the ecosystems. So, of course, they focused on the first ecosystem, which was finance, but they quickly moved into other ecosystems around which have intersections with fintech. So, healthcare, auto, real estate, and what they know as smart cities. So, they're looking at all this technology and how it powers business transformation, but much wider than financial services. We talk about things like customer journeys in the West and, you know, how do we kind of look at how people buy things and, you know, how do we insert ourselves as brands as part of that journey? And here's a company which is sort of focused on that and kind of excelling around it. So, you know, Matt mentioned automotive and to me, one of the things that was explained is that Ping An wants to own the entire journey of somebody sort of sitting there thinking, I want to buy a car, to getting content around buying that car, to getting data in terms of the sites and the, the places that go to relating to buying that car, to the point that, you know, what we were told is that when someone arrives in the dealership, Ping An has an incredibly good idea as to what model, color, trim and everything that that 
particular individual wants to do. So I think, you know, it's that kind of exploding out journeys and focusing on those journeys, which I think is pretty impressive, to be honest. Well, it's interesting, too, because he mentioned the gentleman we, uh, that we mentioned, Erickson Chan, who is the CEO of Ping An Technology. What was interesting, he said they actually now have monetized the data to sell back to the manufacturers. So the manufacturers are actually starting to build my vehicle before I've even gone into the dealership to ask for it. So again, to simplify the supply chain. But, you know, even more than that, the data that they pick up and the data that they deploy allows them to know what should my insurance cost for this vehicle based on the way I drive. They capture data at every point. And it's really two things. Number one, it became clear it makes it more economical for the user. So they find ways to cut costs for the user. Number two, they want to make it a better experience. They want to make the entire process of everything from automobiles to healthcare, every point of contact, make it better. And the amount of data that they're collecting is beyond any scope I've ever seen, which obviously is part of why they're they're number seven on the FinTech Global 2000. So, you know, they're, they're a big company but doing things on the most micro way. With their ecosystem plays, uh, a few years ago, they bought the largest auto marketplace in China was actually listed on the US stock exchange. And they went and, and actually acquired that company. But it was that strategic play that they could actually make that acquisition and turn it into a great asset for the entire group. But the other thing about Ping An that is mind-blowing is they can take great internal ideas, throw some of their 1,000 data scientists or their close to 30,000 computer engineers, and when they solve something, they create companies in their own right. And they've created four unicorns, Firstly, with Lufax, which is one of the largest fintechs in the world, a P2P lending program, which has now become one of the largest wealth platforms in China. They've got OneConnect, which is their service integration for the technology that they provide. They actually leverage that technology for other banks and other insurance companies in China to allow them to have their tech and use their tech. So they're not afraid to do that. And they're basically everything they do is similar to Alibaba and the other organizations we visited is it's all on the cloud. Yeah, and it was interesting, Matt, I can't exactly remember what it was, the relationship between HSBC and Pingan, but... Uh... It was... HSBC used to be the biggest shareholder in Ping An Group, and today Ping An is the largest investor in the HSBC Group. So in such a small amount of time, they've gone from being the small kid on the block, block or the new kid on the block to the biggest kid on the block. And they're truly, you know, as you said at the beginning, they're touching every single element of financial services, but then the logistics of those financial services as well. They also control the health system. So they digitize the health records for the Chinese government. In Shenzhen alone, because they run the auto systems and emergency services, they also provide 
the traffic. So the data scientists for Ping An actually work and control the traffic flows in the city. So they've got their fingers in every pie. Well, it's truly, you know, they're one of the many companies that feed into what is Huawei from the technology side, the smart city. I mean, they're actually making smart cities work. What was interesting, too, about Ping An and the travels that we had is we went from Ping An, by far the largest, if nothing else, from a building standpoint, but from a financial standpoint, to WeLab. And WeLab, just to make sure everybody knows, is not part of WeChat and WePay and WeBank, but really it's a fintech in the true sense of the word. It's a smaller company. Um, it was founded by— It's a unicorn. Yeah, founded by Simon Long who's a Stanford graduate, which I made a comment on social media yesterday that it was pretty amazing how many Stanford graduates we saw in a two-day period. But, Matt, can you tell us a little bit about, just as a foundation point, WeLab? Well, Simon founded the company, and it was really at Stanford that he actually came up with the idea with it. But he had a whole career as a banker, both at Citibank and at Standard Chartered Bank. And his last position at Standard Chartered Bank was the regional head of personal lending. And he wanted to get into doing new kinds of lending and he could see the trends in China. But WeLab is a fantastic Hong Kong story because it's a Hong Kong startup that really has leveraged by going over the border to get the scale and move into the largest market on the planet in terms of China. So they're a personal lender. They're all about financial inclusion. But it's really the culture of WeLab which sets us apart from most companies that you'll visit. The personal culture and the energy of the founder and his executive team really goes across the whole of the team and everyone we saw in their their office. And when I visited them three years ago, they had 32 people in Shenwan and they had about 200 people in Shenzhen. And today they have close to 1,000 people in Shenzhen and about 160 in Hong Kong. So the scale of Shenzhen really shows you the power of what talent actually exists in China in terms of coders, in terms of design thinkers, in terms of creative people, and they've just made it happen. And WeLab is one of the – they've taken up one of the eight licenses for the virtual banking licenses in Hong Kong. So we're looking at – and probably in the next two months they'll launch what their version of being a virtual bank into Hong Kong. But – it's the culture of the and the values of the founder, which is probably the, the greatest story there. Well, what's interesting, too, on and WeLab is they actually do credit for people that are buying mobile phones. And they said that almost instantaneously, they can take a person's phone history and determine their credit worthiness. And one thing that was very impressive is their whole focus was on risk avoidance. That's the background of Simon. And so it's a risk adverse mentality. But as you said, complete inclusion. And Dave, you know, one of the things that I think caught both of us was you know, sometimes you go in thinking, okay, but this is all done, smoke and mirrors, and the consumer's forgotten about. They mentioned about a culture book that they're building. Can you tell us a little bit about that? 
Yeah, I mean, they're really sort of very focused on getting the culture right. And I mean, again, it's impressive. They have, I think they're about to publish the employee handbook and it talks about their values. And I think, you know, it's quite a big document. And I think, as Matt said, that whole kind of culture around people and and really kind of focusing on their particular customer group, I think, really came through. So I think they're looking at very tech-savvy people. So you mentioned about kind of phone products, but they understand tech-savvy people. They, broadly speaking, I guess, fall into 25 to 35-year-old people, but they were sort of at pains to stress that it's not about age, it's about behaviour. And they really are looking at kind of how to connect with those people, provide those people with relevant products and services so that they can kind of live the lives that they kind of want to do. So I think they're really trying to solve problems and they're identifying those problems and kind of doing everything they can to solve those problems in the most effective way that they can. And what was interesting is we went from WeLabs to WeBank, which is a unit of Tencent and an amazingly impressive financial institution. And Dave, as we walked into the building and as we, you know, went into the conference room, what caught you off guard? (laughs) (laughs) Immediately is a sort of access to kind of data that they have and, you know, their ability to kind of, see what's going on across all their businesses from a kind of digital point of view so that they're able to kind of respond to things like that you know they can respond to things incredibly quickly i mean it's just was so impressive the sort of data visualization that is kind of there um so things become very obvious in terms of uptimes latency all the kind of other metrics that kind of people would have in place in terms of a kind of control room how about that conference room (laughs) <laughs> where we yeah. thought we were in a normal conference room until the guy pushed the button. What happened it's then? It's not a conference room. You are underselling it. Was, it. It was very James Bond, I have to say. Very James Bond. But. It's their enterprise control room. So all of a sudden, we they open up the, the windows, basically transform from a whiteboard-type scenario to windows, and you saw the windows and you saw the control room where they keep the customer experience, as you said, Dave, very high. It was interesting because Henry Ma who's the chief innovation officer at at WeBank, asked you a question. He said, how do you think the innovation process goes? And and what I think he asked us to to guess how long the innovation process went. Yeah, so he was like, well, how long do you think it takes us to go from thinking about or kind of blue-skying a product to actually launching it? So, you know, I sort of stuck my hat on, my Western hat on, and thought, well, you know, I guess average it's probably sort of six to 12 months in the West. So, you know, having learned about kind of some of the speed in terms of China, I said, okay, I don't know, two months. And he said, no, it's 11 days. 11 days is the fastest they've been able to do it. But, you know, they are talking about days rather than months. They also create between 20 and 30 product updates each month. This is one of those moments, and Matt, I know, loved it, where this was our last visit, and it was one of those that said, okay, now I'm going to blow your minds completely because the difference between our perception of speed, innovation, and customer experience in the West and what we saw not conceptualized but being done by WeBank on the scale of 575 million transactions a day where you have 206 million customers and you have it done in the most lean organization 
that I've ever seen from a customer versus employee perspective. It was mind-blowing, without any doubt. I think the other thing that really amazes me every time I go with WeBank is really the cost of their operations. The way they've engineered it is to keep it really simple and very cheap. So what they're trying to do is to make sure that they have the absolute scale, but they have scale at a cost advantage. So no one can actually beat them. The other thing that they obsess with is the data flow. Now they're 30% owned by Tencent, but they're not Tencent, but they get access to the Tencent platform and the data flows. And I think that's an amazing thing is they've been able to create an advantage. But the other bit is they've driven their scale of getting other banks onto their platform. And it's this syndication of their lending business. So when you look at China, China is made up of many provinces and Shenzhen's in the province of Guangdong. But there's all these other provinces where other customers would actually trust not necessarily WeBank or WeChat, it might be the local institutions there. So what they've allowed them to do is to come onto their cloud and get access to customers in those provinces and lend to those customers where a percentage of that lending book goes to the incumbent in the province, but they're able to get and grow their lending book across all the other provinces as well by taking a percentage of the syndication of the loans. And finally, before we left, I pulled Henry aside and I said, so how do you keep these employees? And it was interesting because it was it was not different from what we saw at WeLabs is it's about setting up the culture. Henry is another Stanford graduate, and he made it very clear that they're trying to work on a way to move away from the 996 mentality of China, which is 9 o'clock in the morning to 9 o'clock at night, six days a week. And they're trying to work on ways to get it so that people can get more engaged with their families. And I think not only was the inclusionary factor of every institution we met a priority, but you're starting to see a realization that while the Chinese culture works in one way, that the way to get and keep employees, especially at these startups and these big firms, is to really be different from an employee experience basis. Now, I'm not going to say that everything's hunky-dory in China. I'm, I'm not turning a blind eye to the fact that there's different types of competition, there's different kinds of political environments and all that. But I think what we did see, and it was more than just talk because these people, they weren't meeting us to sell us anything. But I think one of the major things that we, as a takeaway for me at least, was there's not an ignorance of inclusion. There's not an ignorance of employee culture. And they all realize that the only way to grow in the future is to be a little different than one of these other companies in the marketplace that are going after the same employees. And, you know, as we wrap up here, David, what was your takeaway? And I know we we were sitting up at night sometimes just going, oh, my God, I can't believe everything I saw. And, and I'm still processing some of the feelings. If there was one major takeaway, what was it from our visit to Tencent? I think for me, it was the platforms look very flexible. And what that means is they can focus on getting data, using that data and actually developing great customer experiences, which kind of resonate with 
an audience. So I think for me, it was sort of looking at the way they've kind of built their businesses to kind of really, really go after particular markets. And Matt, from your perspective, I know you, you get to Shenzhen quite a bit. You're in Hong Kong, so you see a lot of this innovation. But I am sure that every one of these trips gives you enlightenment into something that you just go, God, I didn't catch that the last time or ever since I visited. What was your maybe aha moment during our visit? I learn something every visit. So, yes, I do get that. The aha is really taking people and seeing them open up and understanding the context of what their aha moment was. So, yes, I've seen a lot and I probably go to Shenzhen probably twice or three times a month now. But my aha moment for this trip was we went to have a massage, a spa, a foot massage after our meal. And what we found was the establishment would not take Western credit cards. So the great thing for me was I was able to sync my WeChat pay and my Alipay to MasterCard and to Visa so then I could actually get into these ecosystems. So the thing about China is it is opening up, but I think the greatest thing is the openness of each of the companies in allowing us to get access and the way that they told us their story, their vision, their strategy, and where they're going. And their job is not done. It is just keep moving and moving and moving. The other thing is when you visit other cities in China, whether it be Hongzhou, which is all about e-commerce, or Chengdu, which is about security, or when you smart cities in Shanghai, or where the regulators and autonomous cars are being built in Beijing, every ecosystem has different players. So it's understanding which companies are actually shaping those ecosystems and what are the outputs. But I think the collaborative nature of China is really embedded in every company. And the way that they work together, they've got a word which is cooperation, and it's really cooperating with your competitors because you're better society and together you'll get the whole experience and it'll make a difference for absolutely everyone and everyone will benefit. So it's a win for the customer, a win for the companies and a win for the country. So, Matt, how do people get a hold of you if, if they'd possibly like to think about having an experience like ours? Just get me at Matt, M-A-T-T, at ConnectedThinking.Asia. And I also do and host a number of tours for The Asian Banker. So if you go to theasianbanker.com, you'll see a lot of their, what we call financial innovation uh, study tours. And those tours, the next tour that we're doing is actually in Seoul, Korea. So again, a totally different ecosystem, but in the world of Samsung in Seoul, it'll all be about IoT and embedded technology again. And Dave, how do people get a hold of you? So I've actually left Heath Wallace, some between things. I'm just about to launch another business, but at the moment, if people want to get hold of me, LinkedIn or Dave JV Wallace, at gmail.com is my address. Guys, this was like a reunion tour, but remotely. I just want to thank you, Matt. Thank you for an amazing 
two days of tour of Shenzhen and the financial services, actually the financial services capital of China to be able to see what is possible. And I think that, you know, from my perspective, that was the eye-opening experience. This, you know, I, I try to, when I, I do speaking engagements, to immerse myself in the culture. And I'm already trying to figure out how I get back because there's so much we learned, but so many more questions I have as I look forward to this. And again, I want to thank both of you for making this trip to China just an amazing personal and business experience. And I'll be certainly referring to this trip in many of my writings and running my speakings going forward. So thanks a lot for being with us today. Thanks for listening to Banking Transform. Just raise a top 10 banking podcast. If you enjoyed today's interview, please be sure to subscribe to the show on your favorite podcast app. And don't forget to give our show a five-star rating. Also, be sure to catch my recent articles on the financial brand and check out our research that we are doing on digital transformation, retail banking innovation, the digital customer experience, and financial marketing for the Digital Banking Report. This has been a production of Evergreen Podcast. A special thank you to our producer, Bridget Coyne, and audio engineer, Sean Rule Hoffman. I'm your host, Jim Roos. Until next time, have a great week. You've got questions, we've got answers. Business leadership, ownership, and sales can be challenging. Tune into the Accelerate Your Business Growth podcast to learn from the world's experts. Join me, your host, Diane Helbig, as I chat with people who have expertise in various areas of business. You'll enjoy the lively conversations that are focused on providing you with the ideas, tips, and suggestions you need to realize greater success. Get what you need for your business when you need it from the people who have the answers. Accelerate Your Business Growth is part of the Evergreen Podcast Network and is available on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcast.